1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, this weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folt. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host. I help a wife on a farm. Uh, But one of the things I'm most interested in is science communication and how we can better share the really cool stories that science gives us. And we say that this is all about agriculture and medicine. But it's about conservation, and it's about a lot of other issues than just agriculture and medicine, one of which is maybe environmental remediation and maybe coming up with new products through, through novel biotechnological means. And this one is a great story. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Joanna Sadler. She's a BBSRC Discovery Fellow and group leader at the University of Edinburgh in Edinburgh, Scotland. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sadler.
2: Hello. Hi. It's great to be here.
1: (laughs) It's really great that you're here. Um, I thought the story was fantastic, and I won't give away the punchline just yet, but could you start out by talking about really what is the solution to two problems? Um, First, let's talk about vanilla. Vanilla. (laughs) <laughs> and vanilla is a kind of a strange plant because it's important for flavorings and high in demand, but it has a very vulnerable supply chain. And so can you tell us a little bit about vanilla?
2: That's right. So as, as you're probably aware, vanilla is the stuff that we like to bake with. We put it in our food, and it's used a lot in all sorts of um, foods and flavorings applications. Um, So naturally, in in the natural world, vanilla is actually produced by a a plant from the um, orchid family. Um, And it's actually extracted. The molecule is extracted from these plants and and sold across the world for these um, flavoring applications. The problem with it is that the demand for vanilla is now absolutely huge. In fact, it's about 20,000 tonnes every single year. And there's just no way that we can meet this vast demand with um, extracting the flavourings out of these plants. Um, And this is partly due to um, the price of this natural vanilla being extremely high because... um, um, the, the way in which it is um, extracted and the um, security of the harvest changes quite a lot. So the size of the harvest can change year on year. And this could well be impacted by global warming. Uh, there's actually a lot of theft of the vanilla plants because they're so valuable. And also there's a problem with premature harvesting. So there's a very um, variable yield and a very variable um, amount of vanilla coming out, which can um, address this huge demand.
1: Yeah, and on this podcast, we did an episode back in, I don't know, maybe episode 152 with Dr. Alan Chambers, who is one of my former PhD students who went on to big things. And he's actually working on trying to grow vanilla in Florida. And he mentioned that one of the other big problems is that most of it comes from Madagascar, which is subject to all kinds of weird political and uh, other supply chain disruptions internally. So, oh, and also the flower is really difficult, I guess, to pollinate. And and so there's all kinds of botanical and uh, political barriers to this really important compound. So what are some of the ways that people have tried to mitigate the disruption in supply?
2: Well, one of the main things that um, we have done is actually devised other ways to make the main chemical responsible for that characteristic taste and smell of vanilla. And that molecule is called vanillin. So um, there have now been a lot of different methods to synthesize that chemically from other precursors, not not the vanillin bean, but other feedstocks, Um, the most common of which is using a synthetic chemistry approach from petrochemical um, supplies. And so actually this approach now makes up about 85% of all vanillin demand.
1: Well, that's really interesting. So it starts out with petrochemical. <laughs> so, you're, you're, so at least in the old days, right? Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but that's really an interesting thing. I didn't know that. So when you make a vanillin synthetically, is that done through a genetic engineering step or is that just a straight synthetic step using a petrochemical precursor?
2: So there's actually a lot of different ways you can do this. Um, and it's quite an active area of research. But the most well-established route and the way that is currently scaled up the most, and this actually operates in five plants across the world, three in China, one in the US and one in France, um, is actually starts from phenol, which is derived from petrochemicals, and they synthesize it through a series of chemical steps um, and then a crystallization and distillation at the end to access the, the final product. Having said that, there are biotechnological roots, and a couple of these have actually now been commercialized and scaled up as well. Um, so you can actually take the synthetic, biosynthetic gene cluster from the orchid plant and put that into, for example, yeast or E. coli, and get them to make it in, in exactly the same way, which is from ferulic acid.
1: Yeah, but if you do that, does the vanilla or the vanilla product, ice cream or whatever, does that require special labeling, especially in the EU?
2: Yes. So this is a really interesting area. There's a huge amount of regulation over the terminology that can be used for these flavorings and whether they are called natural or synthetic. And if they are synthetic, whether they are biotechnological or not, um, is quite t- tight re- tightly regulated. So for something to be sold as natural vanillin, it has got to be um, isolated and extracted from the vanilla plant. And that is much, much more expensive. It is legal to, to use this synthetic vanillin for food applications, but they've got to be very carefully regulated and the purity has got to be um, high enough for it to be deemed safe for consumption. Um, but it's a lot cheaper to buy the natural vanillin. So it's about 10 to $20 per kilogram of the synthetic vanillin, sorry. Um, whereas the counterpart from the natural vanillin is many thousands of dollars per kilogram.
1: And vanillin, it shows up in places that we don't normally expect. So what are some of the more unusual, less obvious places where vanilla flavor shows up?
2: Yeah, so... I guess its most common um, application about sixty percent of all vanillins and foods, but yeah, it does it does come up in all sorts of other places as well. Interestingly, in cosmetics is a main one, and um, so it comes in a lot of perfumes because it smells quite sweet and sort of like creamy scent. So it's it's very commonly found in perfumes and and all sorts of kind of you know personal care products. It's also interestingly used in pharmaceuticals um, as a bulking agent because it's deemed non toxic. Um, But it's also used as a food additive in some situations as well, because it has got antimicrobial, antifungal properties, which make it um, a useful bulking agent with these nice additional properties.
1: I once found vanilla toothpaste.
2: Oh wow. <laughs> Sounds and,
1: Well, it was like brushing your teeth with frosting. It seemed like a, like it wasn't working.
2: But, yeah, that's a bit <laughs> weird. <laughs> Too much vanilla. <laughs> All
1: right. Well well so we we frame this problem with not enough vanilla and alternative sources of creating vanilla in this precursor that has the synthetic flavor. Now we've got another problem, and that's a problem of plastic waste. Mm-hmm. So I think most of us are kind of familiar with that, but could you give us a little back of the envelope sketch as to how bad this problem really is?
2: Yeah, it's it's a big problem. There was a fascinating study out a couple of years ago where they looked at the production and the fate of all the plastic that's ever been made. And, they est- and this was, bear in mind, a, a few years ago. They estimated that... Um, 8.3 million metric tons of virgin plastics have ever been produced in, in all of time. And out of that, about 6.3 um, um, million tons of plastic waste have actually been discarded and you know ended up in landfill or polluting the oceans or rivers or whatever. So this is a huge scale issue. Um, so out of all that plastic, only 9% of this has been um, recycled. And so the vast majority of this is just, is just polluting our planet or being incinerated, which obviously has is, is got its own issues associated with it. Um, with PET in particular, which is what we focused on in this study, uh, PET, the plastic, polyethylene terephthalate, that's the plastic that we use to make um, plastic bottles, for example, out of. Um, and so it's almost designed to be single use. So there's this vast accumulation of post-consumer plastic waste building up both in landfill and sadly also in oceans, as we'd all have seen on the news. Um, And actually, um, 80% of plastic bottles are are, um, estimated not to get recycled. And they think that about 24 million liters of oil is needed to produce all these billions of plastic bottles that we're using every year. So it's, this, it's a ridiculous process. We're dredging up oil, turning it into something we use once and then discarding it and it's causing a problem. And um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity here to rethink the way that we manage these resources.
1: Yeah, I heard um, Dr. Joe Schwartz, and I don't know if you know Dr. Joe Schwartz, but he's the uh, uh, leader of the McGill University um, uh Science and Society Outreach Program, and he was saying on his show that to make a one liter bottle of water requires about ten liters of water.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty ironic, <laughs> <outrunner, So>,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so here's this process that's wasteful. It's polluting. It's single use, which drives me crazy. And so this is a so polyethylene terephthalate. Um, this is a problem, and also lack of vanilla. So how did you <laughs> propose to solve both problems at one time?
2: Well, I thought um, I thought it would be a great idea to maybe try and make vanillin out of PET, out <laughs> of the plastic. Um, and in part, this was to demonstrate that we should really start thinking of PET as a resource, not just a waste product, which we need to get rid of. And vanillin seemed like the perfect target because in itself, that's a problem as well. And so I thought, well, let's try and solve two problems with, with one solution.
1: You know, you're the best. I <laughs> <laughs> I just love this story because it makes me so happy. So and, and, and the other word that you used in your uh, paper was upcycle
0: yes yes
2: so
1: you're so you're not just recycling bad plastic you're turning it into something better
2: (laughs) yeah so the thing with plastic recycling as it stands i mean i I don't know what the situation is in the states but in the uk we can send our pet bottles recycling and they tend to shred them down and then they melt them down and reform them into second generation products but these materials after their first use lose about 95 percent of their value so we're seeing a massive drop in the value of materials throughout their life cycle, which seems like a, a terrible waste. Um, and I just think there must be scope to actually, up instead of recycling them, actually upcycle and maintain some of that value um, throughout their life cycle.
1: Awesome. So we're talking with Dr. Joanna Sadler, and she's a BBSRC Discovery Fellow and a group leader at the University of Edinburgh in Edinburgh, Scotland. And we're talking about turning plastic into vanilla with a really cool synthetic biology approach. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment.
3: Happy birthday to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This podcast was spawned in 2015, right after Folta appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience. Rogan suggested that Folta would be a decent podcast host, and Viola, Here we are six years later, 290-some episodes, and approaching 1.5 billion downloads. Which is what Joe Rogan gets in a single day, but hey, this is a niche audience. You see, monkeying with the threads of life to accomplish new feats in human health and food security is just the tip of the iceberg. Today's topics could not even be predicted back in 2015. The best days of biotechnology are in front of us, and the Talking Biotech Podcast will keep you at the cutting edge of innovation. Now back before episode 200, Volta contemplated putting a lid on the theories. There was pressure from his employer to stop, and a weekly podcast is a significant commitment, so between internal and external forces, the podcast seemed to be coming to an end. Most podcasts with similar followings have major production teams, website gurus, and search engine optimization specialists, but not the Talking Biotech podcast. We decided to continue to move on towards the future with no end in sight, the science keeps getting better. Going forward, we'll continue this critical conversation between experts and listeners people like you that are willing to learn more and share the beautiful stories of scientific innovation with others. We thank you for your loyalty and continued support. Now forward into year seven.
1: now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Joanna Sadler. She's a BBSRC Discovery Fellow and Group Leader at University of Edinburgh. And this week had a really cool paper come out. And uh, where was the paper published?
2: We published this in Green Chemistry from the um, Royal Society of Chemistry.
1: Yeah, green chemistry. First time I ever read a paper in that journal, so it didn't, uh, uh, it didn't come to me right away. But this is, it, this is the kind of thing that makes me so excited because here I've been doing this biotechnology podcast for seven years, and or six years, and we're in our seventh year as of today. Oh yeah. Hey, happy birthday to me. (laughs) And, uh, and what's really cool about this is that back when I started, we were talking about virus resistant papayas and tomatoes that tasted better, but the science has only gotten way cooler and, (laughs) and really is exciting. So let's um, continue from where we left off. You're making vanilla flavoring from PET bottles. So do you just take a plastic bottle and throw it into a digester and get vanilla out the other side? Or, you know, what is the step prior to introducing it to the system?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's not far off that. Um, I did actually take a plastic bottle off the streets in Edinburgh for these experiments. So it, you know, you can genuinely lo- use uh, any old plastic bottle. But before you can't just put the bottle into the, the system, first you have to um, prepare it for the reaction and um, and mainly just increasing its surface area so it'll just break down a little bit quicker so well to do that to do that you just have to um heat it up so you can heat it up to about 290 degrees for half an hour after which it becomes really amorphous and you can actually just grind it up using a pestle and mortar and um, to, to a nice fine powder And then that's what we put into the reaction to um, convert it into vanillin. So the first step is you need to depolymerize it to release the building blocks and then we turn those building blocks into vanillin.
1: Okay, so when you depolymerize it, what do you depolymerize it into?
2: So we depolymerize it into the two um, building block molecules. One is called terephthalate, or, and the other one is called ethylene glycol. And to do that, we used an enzyme to make this a completely biological process. So this was an enzyme that was published um, a couple of years ago. Um, and it, it, it's a really efficient enzyme for um, degrading PET directly into these two building blocks.
1: And then is the ethylene glycol, is that used in an industrial practice as well or is that used also just as some sort of metabolite by e-coli
2: it, it can be used as a metabolite by e-coli that's something that i'd like to do in future work is to engineer a strain which can actually use that as a carbon source whilst upcycling terephthalate and um, we haven't got onto that yet but that's that's a future direction for us and um, so at the moment we didn't use the ethylene glycol component to this um, but okay. it, it, it is an important bulk chemical in its own right
1: Right. It's, it's the basis of, uh, you know, many different reactions, but also, uh, you know, a car radiator coolant in, in vehicles. Um, it's, it's a, you know, very important industrial chemical. So the other component here is the terephthalate. And are you just giving this to E. coli and having them produce vanillin out the other side? Or, you know, what are some of the catalytic steps that need to happen in between?
2: Yeah. So if E. coli doesn't naturally express the enzymes which would do this this chemistry. So we had to um, artificially introduce them into our E. coli. So they would take the terephthalic acid or terephthalate and um, convert them into the vanillin. So to do that, we um, introduced four novel enzymes into the system, um, which were all known already from other other pathways. Um, So the first is a dioxygenase, which introduces two hydroxy groups on the aromatic ring. Um, And then there's a dehydrogenase step, and that gets you through to the key intermediate, which is um, an actual product called protecatecoate. And then from there, there's just two more enzymatic steps, a methyl transferase and a carboxylic acid reductase to get you through to the final product, vanillin. And vanillin is actually quite toxic to E. coli. So at that point, the E. coli actually spits out of the cell to try and relieve those toxic effects.
1: I see. So the, I guess the other question is these aren't the enzymes from the vanilla bean, are they?
2: No, these, this is not the natural biosynthetic pathway. So the natural biosynthetic pathway goes via um, ferulic acid through using other enzymes. These are enzymes which we took from other species. So actually from um, three different species and put them all into one E. coli cell to make this happen.
1: Okay. And so all the steps happen essentially sequentially, but um, concurrently. So you have all four expressed in the same cell and the substrates just move from one to the next until you get vanillin on the end, right?
2: That's right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Wow. That's really cool. So, so this is a really nice example of synthetic biology, isn't it? Well, what, what does that really mean?
2: Yeah, synthetic biology is essentially just rationally engineering biological systems to perform whatever desired function you're interested in. So to do this, we we tend to think of biology as a a defined set of parts. And once you understand what those parts do, you you can combine them in rational ways to do interesting things. So in this case, we needed a host organism, which we chose to be E. coli. You need some enzymes to do the chemistry, um, as I've just mentioned. And then you need some bits of DNA which instruct the E. coli to turn those codes for those enzymes into the actual enzymes themselves. And once you understand what all those parts look like in terms of the actual chunks of DNA that you're going to need, it's just a case of, of designing your DNA and assembling it and um, you know, feeding it to the E. coli and letting them do the rest.
1: It's really cool. How so how efficient is the process? Or do you really use all of that uh original uh terephthalate or you know how is how efficient is this and does the E. coli essentially drown in its own uh you know toxic vanillin?
2: <laughs> so the first thing I would say is like this is just our first study into this. So we just wanted to get the the, the process working. And we did do a little bit of optimization to get it as efficient as we could under the current um, conditions. So at the moment, we're getting about 80% conversion from terephthalate to vanillin um, using using these conditions. So it's it's pretty efficient. But the problem we have at the moment is um, we can't increase the concentration of terephthalate too high, else the whole system shuts down. So that's something that we need to look at in the future. Um, In terms of the vanillin kind of killing off the whole process, that is actually a problem. And so one thing we did was we um, looked at ways to actually pull the vanillin out of the system as it was being made using a thing called in-situ product removal. So you basically put in another um, type of solvent, so an organic solvent, which is really hydrophobic, and it pulls out most hydrophobic molecules into that. And so it kind of sequesters all the vanillin in a different part of the reaction space to the E. coli. And it mitigates the toxicity through doing
1: that. Yeah, this is super cool. I really want to change my major to chemistry now, but it's a <laughs> little late. <laughs> so, so what's next? I mean, if you can do polyethylene bottles into vanilla flavor, is there anything else that you can convert that plastic to that is a useful compound that we you know may use?
2: Yeah, there's lots of things. Um, I've got lots of ideas for for new target molecules. Um, the top secret at the moment, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think this is really just the beginning. I think the key point about this paper is it demonstrates that there's just so much more we can do with plastic than then simply shred it up and turn it into I don't know, clothing or whatever. And actually, maybe it's it's a it's a good way to make um, small molecules. So I'm particularly interested in focusing on molecules which would otherwise have been derived. Um, directly from petrochemical resources, which in itself is not a sustainable thing to do, because these these feedstocks are running out. So we do need to find better ways to make them. And to me, making them from a pile of waste, which we've already created, you know, I've just said that we've got six point three million tons of plastic waste. Um, if we can make them out of that waste, I think that's a much more efficient way to do chemistry than making them from things that are that are running out. So I yeah see. Do- Tons of scope (laughs) here.
1: So, so you're, so really this comes from you, you know, and and the idea is really where your heart is at is really in that environmental remediation idea more than good tasting ice cream, or is it both?
2: (laughs) I think it's both. For me, it's all about sustainability and efficient processes, which are having minimal impact on the environment as possible. Um, And so, You know, part of that is addressing supply issues, for example, with vanilla. Um, And the other part of that is using the resources that we've got as efficiently as possible. I don't deny that plastics are really, really useful materials. And I, I don't think that we should just get rid of them altogether. I think we should just rethink the way that we are managing their life cycle um, and almost design them with an end or, or an upcycling um, application in mind and just, you know, think about things efficiently and holistically. So that's really what drives my, my research.
1: That's really cool. But, you know, the other thing about this is that it doesn't seem like the kind of uh, research or the career path that we would have really trained for 10 years ago. So what's your background really like?
2: Yeah, so my my background's actually quite mixed. I did an undergraduate degree in chemistry, which you might be able to tell seeing as we published in a chemistry journal. Um, So I I always thought about things from a fairly molecular level. Um, But I was actually lucky enough to go off and do a PhD in industry where I happened to be working in a biocatalysis group. and I just became fascinated by enzymes and biological systems and the complexity that they could achieve under such mild conditions. I thought that from a sustainability standpoint this is really exciting and it, to me just became the obvious direction to to kind of pursue. And um, so after that I went off and did a couple of postdocs in more biological things just to kind of basically learn <laughs> learn as much biology as I possibly could. Um and then this discovery fellowship was an opportunity to pull all of that together and draw these interests together the chemistry and the biology and the sustainability into into a project and um you know, do, do do something that I'm really passionate about, and um, so it's been a it's been an exciting journey because I'm constantly learning and sort of putting myself in things out of my comfort zone.
1: <laughs> but would that be your advice to uh, new scientists who are just getting into the field or just getting into you know? There's, there's a lot of undergraduates in my classes. And people who listen to this podcast, a lot of students who say, you know, well, you guys figured it out already. And so what's there for me to do? Is it really just about following your passion and trying to solve a big problem?
2: I think you've got to follow something which you're interested in enough that is going to sustain you through, you know, what it's what is a sort of a roller coaster, I always think, of a career. It's, it's up and down. There's highs and there's lows. And the thing that's driving it is the science and your passion for the science. So whatever it is that drives you as an individual, whether it's sustainability, whether it's health research, whether it's drug discovery, whatever it is, it's just got to, um, you know, really motivate you enough to, to get you through all these, these challenges.
1: Well, Dr. Joe Sadler, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and pre- please promise me one thing when you get to the next big discovery or the next big way to solve a problem can you let me know and be a guest again
2: <laughs> i'll be right back
1: <laughs> <laughs> i hope so uh, so thank you very much for joining me today
2: thanks for having me oh one
1: other question where can people find you or follow you on social media
2: yes so i'm on twitter at joe sadler 10 and um, we also have a lab website at sadlerlab. lab um, and i will be building a lab website in the coming months as well
1: very good yeah it's uh, so it's j-o-s-a-d-l-e-r 10 on twitter
2: that's correct yeah
1: okay yeah i just followed you yesterday so very good all right well thank you very much for joining me on the podcast
2: brilliant thanks very much
1: and thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast as we enter our seventh year as of this episode which is really cool i didn't even realize that till today (laughs) Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, Write reviews on iTunes or any place where you consume podcast media. Share it with a friend. Our numbers continue to grow. And uh, use recyclable bottles and eat lots of vanilla. Thank you very, very much for your time. And thank you for listening as we go into year seven. And we'll talk to you again next week.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast.